From the Center for Racial Equity in Education, this is Deep Rooted, a brief history of race and education in North Carolina, written by Ethan Roy and James E. Ford. Deep Rooted is a historical companion piece to Creed's Erasing Inequities report. You can access both reports at our website, creed-nc.org. Over four episodes, this podcast lays out the history of educational opportunity for Black North Carolinians. Episode one highlights learning during enslavement in the Civil War. Episode two focuses on promise and peril following the Civil War. Episode three details the Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court decision and its aftermath. Finally, Episode 4 highlights public school desegregation efforts and recent resegregation across North Carolina. And now, Deep Rooted. In the summer of 1865, newly liberated enslaved people from all corners of Edgecombe County gathered on a knoll just outside of Tarboro, North Carolina. There, Union officers informed them the Civil War had ended. Their day of jubilee had finally come. They immediately decided to create their own settlement, separate from their former owners, just across the Tar River from Tar Borough. Named after the hill where they'd learned of their emancipation, the community of Freedom Hill was born. Freedom Hill was later incorporated as the town of Princeville in 1885, named after a local carpenter. As the first town in the United States founded by freed people, Princeville epitomized both extreme socioeconomic inequality and unwavering perseverance in the face of systemic racism. Freedom Hill was not in fact a hill, but a low swampy area on the south bank of the Tar River, the only land available to its residents in 1865. As a result, Princeville has flooded at least seven times since 1800. Residents have rebuilt after each disaster because Princeville represented too much to abandon. Initially a refuge from the intolerant and potentially hostile white society across the river, Princeville grew to symbolize a legacy of black autonomy in a state still struggling with the cultural and institutional legacy of slavery. Moreover, The efforts of Princeville's founders act as a lens, revealing which aspects of freedom were most important, not just to residents, but to blacks throughout the South during early Reconstruction. Land ownership, economic independence, religious freedom, control over their own lives and the lives of their families, and education. Other than land ownership, Freed people in the South, just after the Civil War, considered education perhaps the most critical vehicle towards autonomy. Both rights had been denied them for centuries. Indeed, the storyline of Princeville, with its elements of resilience, self-reliance, outside aid, segregation, racism, and white backlash, reflects the dynamics of racial inequity in education in the state. But to understand the yearning for education and the inequality that followed in North Carolina's African-American communities like Princeville, one must first examine the status of black education during the colonial and antebellum eras.
African-American education under the peculiar institution. Slavery was present in North Carolina from its inception as a colony in 1663. John Locke wrote in his first draft of the Fundamental Constitution of Carolina that every free man of Carolina shall have absolute authority over his Negro slaves. From the outset, the Lord's proprietors of the colony established a head right system granting, quote-unquote, 50 acres of land for every slave over 14 years old imported into the colony. As the land and the opportunity for whites grew scarce in the more established regions of the Chesapeake and Charleston Low Country, white immigrants poured into the Northern Carolina colony, bringing an increasing number of enslaved people and a firm devotion to the institution of slavery. North Carolina's slave system was not as advanced as those of Virginia and South Carolina during the colonial era. Other than Wilmington, the colony lacked a deep water port and was hugged by a rugged coastline known as the quote-unquote Graveyard of the Atlantic, where many ships perished due to the rough seas and the ever-shifting shoals. Furthermore, North Carolina made little progress during the colonial period in terms of internal improvements, which hindered the economy and the creation of a slave regime on par with the Chesapeake or the rice coast of South Carolina and Georgia. The colonial slave population was mainly concentrated in the eastern part of the colony, where a relatively small number of wealthy planters established plantations, reliant on slave labor. White settlers in the back country of colonial North Carolina lacked the economic means to procure large numbers of enslaved persons. Nonetheless, slavery lay at the foundation of North Carolina society and was foundational to the colony's economy. According to historians Marvin L. Michael Kay and Lauren Lee Carey, open quote, Although not the principal labor system in all regions of North Carolina in the generation before the American Revolution, slavery formed an important source of wealth, prestige, and power almost everywhere in the province. End quote. Chattel slavery in North Carolina relied on violence, coercion, and negotiation, including whippings, threat of sale, sexual violence, and an ever-changing legal framework to control enslaved communities. Yet, despite the extraordinary lengths slave owners went to preserve this racial hierarchy, the enslaved resisted, an act that can be seen in virtually every aspect of life. Subtle examples include feign illness, breaking tools, playing dumb, or working slowly, while more extreme examples include arson, running away, and revolt. As with most slave societies, the struggle for control over enslaved Africans by their white owners was constant. In other words, anecdotal stories of benevolent slaveholders watching over fields of content slaves do not align with the experience of those enslaved. One of the most threatening acts of resistance and a serious threat to the social order, was the education of both enslaved and free black people. Literacy brought opportunities for slaves to forge passes and free papers, to access and spread abolitionist literature, 
and to read the Bible, which was thought to encourage visions of freedom. Educated slaves threatened the very ideology surrounding slavery, says historian Heather Andrea Williams. Open quote. Reading indicated to the world that this so-called property had a mind, and writing foretold the ability to construct an alternative narrative about bondage itself. Literacy among slaves would expose slavery, and masters knew it. Close quote. Slaveholders in colonial North Carolina also associated literacy with the potential for uprisings and unruliness by slaves. For example, in 1762, two Virginia men noted the prevailing sentiment among slaveholders was that, open quote, it might be dangerous and impolitic to enlarge the understandings of the Negroes, as they would probably by this means become more impatient of their slavery and at some future day be more likely to rebel. They urge farther from experience, the most sensible of our slaves are the most wicked and ungovernable. Testimony from the enslaved themselves is also revealing. During the Great Depression, the Works Progress Administration employed people to canvass the country to find and interview people who had been enslaved before the end of the Civil War. WPA interviews of formerly enslaved people in North Carolina show both the yearning for education and the backlash from slave owners. For instance, a formerly enslaved woman named Hannah Crasson said, quote unquote, you better not be found trying to learn to read, explaining that our master was harder down on that than anything else. Patsy Michener recalled a similar experience, saying, quote unquote, you better not be caught with no paper in your hand. If you was, you got the cowhide. Despite the risk, many enslaved people secretly taught themselves. A North Carolina woman named Charity Bowery said, quote unquote, I have seen the Negroes up in the country going away under the large oaks, and in secret places, sitting in the woods with spelling books. When Robert Harris, a free black man, joined the American Missionary Association, AMA, to teach freed people in Fayetteville, he said, I have had no experience in teaching except privately teaching slaves in the South where I lived in my youth. He claimed his brother taught slaves in Fayetteville as well. The rare opportunities for free blacks to receive an education in North Carolina existed most transparently in the apprentice system. Had it not been for the apprentice system, says historian John Hope Franklin, it is safe to say the educational achievement of the free Negroes would have been far below the level that was attained. From 1762 until 1838, master craftsmen were required to teach apprentices to read or write regardless of race. Moreover, some religious organizations, such as the Quakers, promoted teaching enslaved people and free blacks, but not in significant numbers. During the 1830s, whites in North Carolina cracked down on slave literacy and free black education. In 1829, David Walker, a free black native of Wilmington, living in Boston, published his pamphlet, Walker's Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World. Filled with rhetoric calling for the enslaved to revolt against their owners, 
Walker's appeal spurred a wave of anti-black education legislation across the South. Education and the contagion of abolitionism were finally fused in the minds of white North Carolinians, spurring declarations like this one from the North Carolina General Assembly in 1830. The teaching of slaves to read and write has a tendency to excite dissatisfaction on their minds and to produce insurrection and rebellion to the manifest injury of the citizens of this state. Under a law enactment at the time, any free person who shall hereafter teach any slave within this state to read or write, the use of figures accepted, or shall give or sell to such slave or slaves any books or pamphlets, shall be liable to indictment in any court of record in this state. Neither could slaves teach each other to read or write. If convicted, white offenders would be fined $100 to $200, or prison time, while free blacks faced fines, prison time, or whipping. A slave convicted under this law would receive, quote-unquote, 39 lashes on his or her bare back. Around the same time, calls for white education in North Carolina grew louder. In 1832, Reverend Joseph Caldwell the first president of the University of North Carolina, said, To one this destitute of opportunity and education, heaven is out of sight, and hell but a note in language. Caldwell was speaking only about whites. According to historian Harry Watson, in order to ease class tension among whites, reformers pushed for universal white education in the South to rid the white poor of their blackness or ignorance. White education in the state slowly began to improve. In 1825, the North Carolina legislature created a state literacy fund and later offered matching grants to pass taxes to support primary schools. Furthermore, North Carolina became the first state to offer publicly funded universal white education. According to the census of the United States in 1850, in North Carolina, there were 553,028 whites, 27,463 free persons of color, and 288,538 enslaved persons, for a total population of 869,039. By 1850, there were 100,591 whites and 217 free blacks attending school in North Carolina. 25 counties had at least one free black enrolled in school, with Wake County being the highest at 52 students. According to John Hope Franklin, there were 12,048 free black adults in North Carolina, of which 5,191 were literate. Obviously, free blacks in the state were learning to read and write regardless if they were officially enrolled in school or not. In the mid-1800s, North Carolina's slavery-based social structure lay at the root of inequity in the education in the state. But the social structure would soon begin to crumble as the nation hurtled towards civil war. Black Education During the Civil War 
Much of eastern North Carolina fell under Union occupation early in the Civil War. Under the command of General Ambrose Burnside, Union forces captured New Bern on March 14, 1862, and sacked Beaufort 11 days later, giving the Union Army a foothold in eastern North Carolina for the remainder of the war. Enslaved people across the eastern portion of the state flocked to Union-occupied territory for protection and to aid in the war effort for the North. One of the first aspects of free life for formerly enslaved people in Union-occupied North Carolina was access to education, which helped them distance themselves as much as possible from their former status. A Union soldier from Massachusetts alluded to enslaved people's success in learning, saying, About one in fifteen of the men, women, and children could read. We find many learned or began to learn before they were freed by our army, taking their instruction mostly on the sly and indeed in the face of considerable danger. Educated free blacks, Union soldiers, and northern aid societies in the region all contributed to African-American education during the Civil War. Northern teachers almost immediately entered eastern North Carolina. Many of them had never seen a person of African descent before and were astounded at the efforts of freed people to further education and establish their own places of learning. Contrary to popular belief among whites at the time, African Americans were talented, eager students despite generations of enslavement. In September 1863, a teacher in New Bern with the AMA wrote that, to African Americans in the area, obtaining an education seemed to be the height of their ambition. In the months following the war, John W. Alford, the Freemen's Bureau's National Superintendent of Schools, noted that, throughout the entire South, an effort is being made by the colored people to educate themselves. In the absence of other teaching, they are determined to be self-taught, and everywhere some elementary textbook or the fragment of one may be seen in the hands of Negroes. Alfred described a black-run school in Goldsboro, North Carolina, where two colored young men, who but a little time before commenced to learn themselves, had gathered 150 pupils, all quite orderly and hard to study. Makeshift schools occupied a variety of spaces. One teacher described a schoolhouse. In a barn fitted up with seats for nearly 400 persons. The same teacher went on to describe very cold conditions during the winter months, but freed people still attended. When black men were permitted to enlist in the Union Army after the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, they set up schools in the Army barracks. Local black leader Abraham Galloway wrote to the Liberator, the badge of slavery is superseded by the U.S. uniform. In the reading book, in the slate, are the accompaniments of these former victims of ignorance wherever they go. They hunger for the forbidden fruit of knowledge with a zest of appetite which imparts marvelous powers of acquisition. Yet the threat of local white backlash remained very real. In May 1862, Military Governor Edward Stanley 
ordered black schools in New Bern to close, citing state slave codes forbidding teaching blacks to read or write. The schools were closed, but later reopened. In 1864, three white men set fire to a black schoolhouse and threatened the female teacher with violence unless she promised to never again teach niggers to read. Despite such setbacks and racist attacks, the Union Army's presence largely allowed black communities in occupied eastern North Carolina to thrive. For example, by the end of March 1864, New Bern had 11 freedmen's schools, while Beaufort had three. Nine more existed in other occupied parts of the state. In July 1864, there were about 3,000 African-American students in school throughout the region. But the war's end set the stage for enormous challenges. At books for black schools were rented.